Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. The point isn't that we look smart. It's we're students, you know? <laughs> I'm actually more afraid of tornadoes. I think a lot of people just instead feel very unforgiven. Tolkien defends his right to write about monsters. Genuine empathetic regard that in and of itself is therapeutic. Okay, so we play tested that board game I'm making. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the one it's essentially like cooperative Yahtzee, but with like a Power Rangers like kind of feel to it. And it was actually pretty fun. So stay tuned. Stay tuned for the physical playtest copy um, that I'll have to. Are you coming up for Christmas? Uh, yeah. Thanksgiving and Christmas. Thanksgiving and Christmas. Okay, I'll see if I can try to have something done by then that we can actually play because it was it was fun. It was tense. It's like a time base. It's like five minute dungeon meets Yahtzee. Um, Is it? Yeah, it was a good time. Like right now is stuff like kind of drawn up or scribbled up or did you guys actually like make pieces or what? Oh, okay. So we did a lot of math in Google Docs to try to figure out. if everything was going to work like probability wise. And then we used a board game um, simulator. Like uh, I think it's actually called tabletop simulator. Oh, and in that computer program, we made the pieces, we made the decks, we made everything and then play tested like in that program. Wait, so do you have to pay to use that or is that like a free? Uh, Yes. Okay, that's actually a good idea. Yeah. So you pay to use it. And then a lot of board games will sell their games also through Tabletop Simulator um, for like way cheaper. But so you could like get an audience going for the game before you, you know, try to sell it or crowdfund it or anything, or they could just play it digitally. I didn't even think about actually trying to make it work as a digital game. I was just going to go to like I think what you do is you like go to cons like comic cons or stuff like that and you set up a booth and you hope people like the look of it and pick it up yeah um but that might be a way better way of doing it is trying to tap into that audience like trademark it do all of that get an audience through that and then try to get people to buy the physical copies that might be the way to go yeah that could be cool i don't that's just what i i thought of when you're saying that so what about you? How's uh Hurricane Ian cleanup? Uh it is I mean for me it's it's not bad. Like this area I was in, the storm did go directly over us. Uh but it just like loses a bunch of intensity when it goes over land to begin with. Uh and mm. then when it went over us, it just for some weird reason lost even more intensity and then it kind of like went over to orlando and like picked up so we got all of the crazy winds and stuff but hardly like any rain like we got almost nothing um Mm. and then orlando weirdly got like two and a half feet of rain or something crazy like that so it's kind of like uh yeah i mean now that i've been through one 
I would say, I don't know, and I don't want to sound like smug or anything. Like in Central Florida, when you're in inland, like I think I would stay through another. But if I was on the coast and I was like in one of the areas that was predicted to hit or like told to evacuate, I would definitely leave. Like I get it to a certain extent that like everyone, everyone around here just like doesn't really care. I actually really get it inland. It was like a really bad storm, but there's also like, I have a, you know, a professor and a couple of friends like on Instagram and stuff who live on the coast and they were all just like hanging out there, like while it was hitting their area, which is like totally mm. crazy to me. I mean, especially by the time people are hearing this though, it's like all past. Well, you know what? Okay. So that's tying into something I learned, I think last semester. Um, so it's a little freebie, <laughs> uh, but it was talking, it was in my multiculturalism class and the book was talking about th this book wasn't like our textbook, but it broke up different ways of understanding people groups based on like spectrums. And one of the spectrums was, if I can remember it, it was like, this isn't what it is. It was like a, like a planning. <sighs> One side of the spectrum was like, likes to plan, likes to have a plan, likes to run by a schedule. And the other side was more of a, like, take things as they come, like one day at a time. And I wish I could remember the actual names for it. But like the example they gave was actually of a hurricane hitting an Island where this guy was like, staying he was a missionary so he like was living in the culture and then kind of wrote his experience um, but he said that a hurricane was coming in so he was an american uh grew up in the western world which is very driven by schedule like a very planning culture so he had a radio and he would listen for hurricane warnings so he got this and he'd go around to all of his neighbors warn them about this hurricane coming and his neighbors who are island natives we're like, oh, okay. Didn't really care at all. Um, then like the week of the hurricane as the hurricane's approaching, like he's warning all of his neighbors again. He's like trying to bat, like kind of secure his home. And still like there's people with like gasoline ran, like logging machines that are down at the coast, like doing work. Uh, no one's really done anything. The national guard on the Island, they've like, totally secured all their windows and like waterproofed everything. But it wasn't until the hurricane hit that the island natives like actually then started to adjust. And for a lot of people, they might be like, well, yeah, that's why we're better because we like have a plan. But for the island natives who get about, I think, 10 hurricane warnings a year because of where they're located, um, or I think it's like 10 every like two years for them, like they've had so many like false calls where the hurricane misses them and they've wasted all this time. Like, and to them, like time is still money. Um, and then on top of that, they don't know how it's going to hit. Is it going to be high water level? Is it going to be high winds? So when this hurricane, when it actually hit and it was determined to be high water levels, one, their houses are already kind of prepared for it. Um, so it was then that the community came together immediately and started like rescuing the logging machinery and like making sure they're waterproofing people's house. One person, like a couple people even grabbed the house 
that was like being swept away. So it's kind of cool. It's like one side I don't think is better than the other. Um, Cause you might say, well, you should just plan ahead. But for all the times that they get and try to implement a safety plan and just like waste time, like they've kind of learned it's just better to kind of roll with the punches when they happen. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, I've only, I mean, I've got no place to speak cause I've only been through like one of them now, but uh, for one thing, in this case with Ian, the path changed last minute. So I actually got the rough end of it where I was supposed to be just fine. I was supposed to be completely out of the way. And then the day of it was like, oh, no, just kidding. It's coming, you know, right for you. But for a lot of people that works, I mean, for Tampa, for example, they, they were the ones who were like projected to get it. And it was in the news and all sort of that. And and then they were just, just fine. So there's that side of it, like you're saying, where you've experienced the false calls there's also the side of it of like here's here's my my uh takeaway from going through a hurricane is i think i'm actually more afraid of tornadoes than hurricanes really yeah that's that's sort of what i figured out is like a tornado at least you know where we're from like if it's coming through it's like you go in the basement and if it hits your house, like, sorry, you know, it's going to like pull your house up and like mess stuff up. Um, and even with stuff like trees falling and like limbs falling on your house, it's like, you know, trees are going to fall, but it's kind of just a roll of the dice. If it's the one that's going to fall on your house and kill you or if it's not, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's it's less intense of like a full it's less intense in terms of being like a huge intense event, you know, whereas the yeah, hurricane is like a smaller area. Y- yeah, exactly. It's like it it is kind of like a needle in a haystack or that's actually a really bad analogy. Yeah, it's going to it's going to impact directly a much smaller area, but it's going to do so very intensely. Um, whereas a hurricane like covers up the whole state of Florida um, and it moves really slow. So like if you're getting hit, like you got to just hold on and it might be directly over you for like another four hours. But the storm itself is it's rain really intensely and it's wind really intensely. And so it's actually a lot more about the structure that you're in. Hmm. Like I would almost compare it. This might sound weird. I'd almost compare it for us to like a blizzard where it's like. You want to prepare to not have water. You want to prepare that you might lose your power. You do all the preparations. You like uh, try to make sure that nothing is going to break through the windows or no water is going to get through under the door, anything like that. So you do prepare. But at the end of the day, it's like it's more of a question of, okay, am I in a mobile home or am I in uh, what I happen to be in, which is like a sturdy block building. But if you're in the Mm -hmm. sturdy block building, you almost don't have to worry as much. And again, everything I'm saying is completely like biased to if you are inland, like that completely changes if you're like on the coast, because obviously we've all seen like the photos where stuff just gets like ravaged, but that's not where I am. So yeah, I would, Mm. I would relate it more to a blizzard where it's like, it's probably not the storm itself. That's going to kill you. It's the, 
water and the structure and like all the stuff if you don't have good preparations and if you aren't in like a solid building if that makes any sense hmm. but i would like just no, in my does. heart i would fear a tornado coming through much worse than a hurricane and i mean if anybody's listening to this like yeah well hurricanes sometimes start tornadoes like yeah exactly but still it's the tornado That's the double whammy yeah it's the tornado in that scenario that i'm more afraid of um like emotionally maybe not rationally but yeah so it's it's a fun i've been through i've officially lived through a hurricane well done chalk that up <laughs> chalk that life goal up. i'm a real Floridian. also yeah <laughs> i i looked it up it was time orientation versus event orientation time orientation being more the western society live by a schedule mm, right. event orientation being more you know deal with the event as it currently happens yes um that makes sense so all right well uh what you've been learning in school this week yeah a little bit of a longer intro than normal <laughs> but we talked about class a little bit maybe yeah a little bit we talked about a weather event that is since long gone um so i am gonna pull again from my more english oriented classes and not uh like history or science or anything like that i was really trying i actually made notes for history of science and the human but just before we started recording i was like eh, i want to do something different so uh this week we read a i guess it would be an essay or technically it was a speech presented by jrr tolkien about oh. beowulf so have you read beowulf oh. I in high school, so and I could not really tell you anything about it. OK, yeah, that's sort of what I was going to ask. But like, obviously, what you do know about it, it's like a poem. It's like mm -hmm. old English. I actually got away with never reading it in high school. So really, I'm reading it all for the first time. Yeah. So I guess for anybody who hasn't listened to or hasn't read it, this might get a couple layers deep but the poem beowulf pause the podcast go yeah. read the entire epic poem of beowulf come back yes because i'll give you a little spoiler alert i'm about to be reacting <laughs> to tolkien reacting to the criticism of the poem beowulf so truly we're <laughs> like four layers in right now um but it's this old english poem pretty much uh, and it is really important to understanding the old English language because we just don't have that many artifacts from that period. Uh, I'm pretty sure I might be a little bit off on these numbers, but I'm, I'm more or less accurate with them, which is that I think the old English corpus is like uh, three million words that we have recorded. And the Harry Potter series is five million. I might have those Dang. two numbers reversed, actually, but either way, reverse or not, that just goes to show like we don't have that much old English, but we do have this one kind of epic in quotes, old English poem. So that's a kind of, quick interruption. Yeah. You said the old English corpus. What does that mean? Corpus. Uh, corpus. Corpus, I guess, isn't actually that far off with old English. Um, so it's just like the collection of 
uh, you know, I guess I gave it by word count, but it's just the collection of works that they have from like the old English language. It's what they have to study. It's what they have to work through. Obviously, there's not as many documents from all the way back then. So gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's see where, what was I going to say? Oh yeah. Beowulf. So <laughs> um, the poem, I won't even really get into it in terms of summarizing, but there's this character. He's called Beowulf. He's kind of like the hero of the story, I guess, more or less. It goes through his life and uh, he kills like Grendel, which is this like demon type thing. And then there's a dragon. Oh, and wait, if I'm remembering right from what I remember of that, Beowulf is essentially like. There's this collection of people huddled together in this giant mead hall. Yes. Celebrating and drinking. Think like very Viking, but I think set in like a ire, like Ireland Celtic kind of. Yeah, both kind of. Gotcha. So Beowulf comes up. And then Grendel, this monster, attacks the mead hall while Beowulf is there, right? Yes. So Grendel, and so he hates the music and the sound and the singing. And so, like, that's right. I don't know if it's every Your classic night. grumpy neighbor, neighbor. Yeah. Like, he lives in town, so to speak, and just comes over predictably. And this is like not, this is not Beowulf's like domain. He like came in to help these people. So mm. he's like heard of what Grendel is doing and he comes in. So yeah, that's it in the, the mead hall. Uh, and they have mead benches. And so anyway, I guess I won't recap the whole thing, but what Tolkien is responding to in this essay, it's called, I think, Beowulf, The Monsters and the Critics. And mm. the critics have, uh, you know, kind of at this point in, in criticism, they've made Beowulf like uh, they've acknowledged its importance for us understanding the old English language and us understanding the world of the time and all of that. But they're kind of like, yeah, man, it kind of stinks that this great writer kind of wrote about like these monsters and stuff. And the specific thing they say is like the writer puts all of the important stuff at the edges of the story. And in the center, it's kind of like these silly little monsters. And what hmm. they mean by the important stuff that gets put at the edges is there are hints of, uh, you know, kings who we understand to be real kings who lived and so people are like studying that for like the history and there are kind of like descriptions of like the world of the time. Uh, and so people are studying that and getting really into it. Uh, and it gives us a lot of these insights about the language. Uh, but again, just to repeat, like the thing the critics are saying is all the important stuff is at the edges and like kind of a shame that this great prolific writer, like, man, he could have been so much better if he kind of would have done it our modern way. They obviously wouldn't say that, mm. but that's kind of what the implication is. And so it's like the sentiment. Yes. And so that's one of the criticisms they're making. What Tolkien comes back and says 
is so this is this is really uh the part that when i read it it kind of like stuck out to me because it, it kind of like reminded me actually a little bit of like the bible and how people treat the bible mm. and he gives this analogy i guess where he's saying you guys are treating this poem like an archaeological site like mm. you guys are you know dusting off the words and you're like picking them up and examining them like one syllable at a time and you're looking for the history in it and you're saying oh this this sounds like a reference to a king so let's find out more about the history of that king and all of that and he's saying you guys are essentially missing the point of the poem he's saying you guys are using your rubric which is like uh i guess more uh, i don't want to say academic he's He's saying you're using our modern, like scientific and linguistic and historical rubric to evaluate a poem, but you're saying that it's not a good poem based on the scientific side of it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it's good. No, yeah, because what I hear you saying is like historians are looking at this epic poem and saying, man, I wish this writer would have wrote us a really good history book instead of a poem. Right. And it's, I don't think Tolkien is saying that there's anything wrong with them learning, uh, with them using the poem as like a tool to understand the history or the mm. science of the language or anything like that. He's not saying that's wrong, but he's saying you guys have gotten so in the weeds of that, that now you can't step back and say, you can't see what the poem is. And so when I compare it to like the Bible, it's sort of like the same thing, like, I think it's important when you're reading the Bible to get into the, to know the context, you know, to know who's writing it, to know who they're, you know, in the example of like an epistle, know who's writing this letter and who they're writing the letter to, you know, all of that stuff is important. But at the same time, if you zoom in so far, like that's where you get to the point where what we do as Christians is we quote like, two or three words at a time, these little like chunks, and we completely mm -hmm. don't even know what the point of the letter was. Uh, and so it's not exactly the same thing because like the Bible isn't poetry, but what Tolkien is saying is like, hey, take a step back. Well, and you'll part of realize, the Bible isn't poetry. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm using, I guess I used specifically the example of uh, the epistles. So mm, Tolkien true. is saying, you know, hey, step back and you guys will get it. So there's pretty much two more thoughts uh, that I see him making. I'll kind of try to go through them quick. I don't know if this is interesting at all. Uh, I, I think it's interesting. So one of them is in reference to this is the one. Can I, I ask a question real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to help the people at home kind of maybe set this. We talked about kings that they have looked up and we talked about like history do you know roughly what time beowulf was written during so people could kind of place mm. it in their mind calendar yeah well it's definitely medieval i actually i actually don't know and i can't google it right now uh it's like so this is one of the things that tolkien gets into is it's written the poem is written in like the old english period 
but mm-hmm. there are some biblical allusions in it that kind of hmm. tip us off to the idea that, you know, the writer was a Christian, which kind of makes sense because in the time it was written for him to be like, it's medieval. Yeah. For him to be learned enough to write a poem like this, you only got that education as like working in the church or studying in the church. So there's that, but also the poem is kind of like riffing on Norse uh, mythology or at least like tropes or mm-hmm. kind of tools. And so that's why I said earlier, like when you asked if it was more like Norse or more like old English, it's like, well, kind of yes, because to us, the whole poem is a throwback. But even when it was written, it was pulling from these. Uh, I don't know if you'd say nostalgic, but it was pulling from the past to tell a story, to retell an old story. So- so do you, this was for sure before Shakespeare. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, but after the Danes or the Vikings, maybe settled Britain and France after they were like given land. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I wish I knew. I wish I knew history better. I know. And I, my gut wants to say like 15, 1600s. Cause wasn't Shakespeare like 1700s? Uh, about yeah and i i was gonna say i was gonna say about the same it might have been a little bit earlier even beowulf it could have been like 1300 to 1500 i really don't know oh wow i'm sure that like whoever's listening to this could google it and we probably look like fools but yeah um hey the point isn't that we look smart it's we're students (laughs) it's just so it's 10 times worse when i'm saying something that's like immediately verifiable like the date that it was written, you know, like it's not my opinion that I can like stand by and defend. But OK, so this is the part that I think you would be more interested in because. OK, I don't particularly like fantasy. I don't particularly like science fiction, you know. Oh, wow. I'm watching. There's some good science fiction. Yeah. And it's like it's all right. And stuff like. Star Wars, you know, I grew up watching. And so it's hard for me to say but that's more space fantasy. Yeah, I just in general, I'm more disposed to like realism and uh, at least in like movies and storytelling, like gotcha, really real, really dry, honestly, really like focused on the character or like the internal oh, world. Dude. So you got to read Dune. Yeah, I've actually, yeah, been thinking about that. Somebody else brought that up to me this week. I forget who. But so so that's, I'm generally, what I'm getting at is not like super aligned with like Tolkien. Never read Lord of the Rings. Never been a huge fan of the movie, the movies. I'm watching the show right now. Have you seen anything about that? Rings of Power? I haven't. So yeah, Amazon it's either the best or the worst from what I've heard. Yeah. People are like making a big deal out of it. Uh, I, it's all right. I don't know. I'm not I'm not the best person to judge because it's not really what I'm the most into. And so what some of the critics are saying, which I already got at, is they're like, man, why are these monsters? Like the stuff he writes, like when he forgets that he's writing about a dragon 
and he's just writing about like the kings and the world and the rulers like that stuff is cool like we wish he would have stuck to that and lewis kind of defends uh his right to write about monsters and such and so you Mm kind of get an idea you get some insight into him as a writer um and he talks about which this is not necessarily groundbreaking he talks about when you're fighting the monster it kind of universalizes it it kind of you know Hmm. that dragon or that monster can come to symbolize a whole lot of different things and uh i don't know it just it just like like similar to a david goliath story yeah yeah or i mean really similar to i guess that's kind of I guess I'm asking you, that's like kind of the point of like fantasy though, is all of these things, like you can kind of see what they represent, right? Like, is that why you would read like a science fiction book, for example? Well, I mean, so I won't talk about reading that much, but I'll talk about Dungeons and Dragons. Um, cause I played Dungeons and Dragons for like 10 years where you're essentially just ad libbing the story. Yeah. And I think I started off and it was about fighting monsters. It was simple, go out, fight the monster, save the day. Um, but as I played more and more, I felt like my stories were too simple. You know, they weren't complicated enough. There wasn't enough gray area area. There wasn't enough, you know, like back and forth. So my stories started getting more and more political. Mm -hmm. It started being more about the factions and the double cross and the intrigue and the family situations. And like after about, I think two years of us doing this, I could feel how exhausted my players were because everything had to be analyzed and looked at and thought about the story was grand and epic and vast, but it was exhausting to play through because like it lost the ability for like people just to go and play and not have to worry about like, Oh, if I take down this person, what's the side effect going to be? And what system is that going to destroy? And who's going to, it was, it's just, Hey, we're going to go out and fight this monster. And they'd have way more fun just fighting the monster. And so maybe like to kind of relate it back to what you're saying, you're saying that people, humans, have the ability when reading these stories about just fantasy creatures. Like I listened to like a podcast today on like Krakens and there's this thing you can attach to it, to this otherworldly creature, to this dragon, to this giant, to this, you know, whatever that allows you to who for different readers attach different values and interpret things differently and take different lessons that that reader can apply to their own life individually in a meaningful way that might be different from the next person question mark. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's what some of the more, uh, I guess, fantastic for lack of a better word types of storytelling do is you know, if there's a monster that hides in the dark, it's not hard to imagine for somebody that, oh, well, that represents, you know, it could be uh, being alone with your thoughts. It could 
represent, you know, um, a, a number of different things. It could be, you know, if there's a dragon, like the story of going out and slaying the dragon and bringing it home, that is, you know, well, I need to have courage and I need to go out and like tackle the world, that sort of thing. And so these, I guess, themes Ooh. are very like broad and very universal and that's their appeal. And I don't know why it doesn't appeal to me. I guess I think there's part of me that thinks it's too easy. I don't know. Because like yeah. with, with Dungeons and Dragons, you, I know kind of what you're saying, like it's not all about uh, the world that's being created, but at the same time, nobody plays realistic Dungeons and Dragons where you just go into the office and like work. You know what I mean? Well, so, dude, some people do. Oh, really? <laughs> some people that is there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, isn't that kind of like what extra life is? Like the second life simulator you can get on your computer? I guess. Yeah. Like, even like the Sims. Yeah, true. But even then, like. What was I going to say? I, I, I had a thought that related and I thought would launch this in a good way. It was about, oh, OK, so. Similar to what you're talking about, that might maybe provide a little bit more context, allow us to kind of chew on more. I was listening to someone talk about like cryptids, which is like the very modern way of talking about monster and ghost stories. Mm -hmm. So they were talking about what they this was, I think, probably a couple years ago. What they loved currently about Siren Head. Do you know about Siren Head? No, never heard of it. Ooh, okay. So they talked about what they loved about Siren Head and what they grew to not like about Slenderman. And you know who that is, right? Yeah. Okay. So Siren Head was just this cryptid someone had created. He's like stories tall, like Slenderman, very like lanky, but in a way where like if you saw him on the horizon and he wasn't moving, you'd be like, is that a is that a pole with a siren on it? Is that a really weird looking bunch of trees that just are standing in front of this pole anyway. So all he does is he creates this sound that sounds like a siren. It sounds like a, like different countries, sirens warning for something. And it's really like, you'll have to watch some videos of it because it's really like eerie to hear. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is it wasn't explained. Like where he came from, what he actually does, like it wasn't explained. So people were able to attach, like watch it and not read somebody's explanation, but attach their own feelings and fears, especially with a siren. So they were like, they listen to that siren and that can mean different things for different people. Um, whereas like by the time that siren head was a thing, Slenderman had been out for so long that he had a backstory and people knew exactly how he worked and he had this lore. And so it lost the appeal that it had when he was new and no one knew anything about him. So people could attach their own fears to him. Um, now that, that's gotta be different than Beowulf though. Cause I feel like giants and dragons have like tropes attached to them but did they not at that time is that kind of like is it that now we've defined what a dragon is to the point where like it's not special anymore well hmm 
So the critics that Tolkien is writing against, my, this is maybe me putting words in their mouth, but it's almost as if they were kind of like, you know, laughing at like, oh, these, these monsters, as in like, oh, these silly superhero Marvel movies, like there's nothing to them, you know? Oh, so gotcha. I think they kind of have the attitude of like, we've moved on and like, man, that guy was a great writer and he was writing about these, you know, demons and the dragon because this is when he was, but you know, we kind of tell better stories now. Uh, it's kind of below us. And so the things I kind of got out of it, like reading it and reading Tolkien's explanation of, you know, not not unlike what you were just saying, like by him fighting a monster instead of like a political enemy or something, it does allow the reader to kind of attach something uh, to it or to read out of it a universal message. One of the things that uh, Tolkien says is that, uh, OK, so the poem Beowulf, it has I think I've said this kind of already but it has two enemies that he fights it has grendel who is like the demon thing and it has the dragon and apparently a lot of the critics were like oh gosh man we get one monster but two like <laughs> it's like man too far and tolkien kind of writes back and i i love because he just everything they say he like turns it back against them he's like complaining that there are two monsters is like precisely the dumbest complaint because he's like um, what would be the alternative he's like say that in the first act uh he fights a demon and then in the second act he's just like sword fighting with some guy like that would be super anticlimactic and it's like now imagine the opposite imagine at the beginning it's like some fight with another human and then the story goes on and then at the end the dragon comes out and he slays a dragon. He's like, that would seem like it was coming out of nowhere. And so he's like, it's precisely uh, the idea that he's up against two monsters that like makes sense. You know, he's like, that's in keeping with uh, sort of the scale that he's established. And so I don't know. Mm. I kind of like it made me because I am watching this Lord of the Rings thing right now. It's making me want to give it more of a shot. And I actually think I should read the books at some point. I don't know if you have. You tried reading The I, Hobbit I a long keep, time, didn't you? No, I've tried reading Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I know there's going to be a lot of people out there who are very surprised, but I get about to the same place in what would be the second movie where the writers of Rohan ride up and I just give up every time. Yeah. <laughs> he is super meticulous. Like, because I'm in this that C.S. Lewis class, too. And obviously, Lewis and like Tolkien mm -hmm. were friends. But pretty much, I think C.S. Lewis was always telling him, like, dude, move on. Like, you're thinking about this way too hard. Uh, but he was, Tolkien was so meticulous. And I mean, obviously, like, crafting languages. And he really thought through the details. I do think, though, between reading this thing and also because I am studying, like, some linguistics i think i would appreciate more mm. that side of it even if it's not like exactly my cup of tea 
I think I'll get more out of it now. Whereas like, yeah, I never even tried to read them in like high school because I just wouldn't have been about it. Yeah, I bet you would. I, I feel like if anything, it's probably out of fantasy what you'd end up liking the most. Yeah, because it's kind it is of the like, best what, of like what you said. Thing. Yes, it's it's slow. It's it's got action, but it's more like it's more like it had action. This world has had action and is now like gearing up for action that probably can't handle. So it's not like you're like going out there and fighting everything. Ah, it's it's everything like at one point you're like, are they fighting a mountain while trying to climb it? Because it seems like they're perso- like they're personifying the mountain. And I'm not quite sure if they are or not. And it's interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I bet you I bet you'd like it. It's pretty deep. Yeah, I, I've got it. I think I'm going to do it just to say that I've done it once. But yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, so I don't know. It made me appreciate the poem more. It made me appreciate Tolkien more. It made me maybe appreciate fantasy and more stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, it was interesting. But what are what are you uh, learning? What am I learning? Um, so I actually, and I know that we were recording on a Friday this week, um, and I technically still have a chapter of textbook reading I haven't done yet. Nice. Um, it was a busy week, and sadly, it's the chapter that probably would have made for the. Uh, for the best talking it's the it's the chapter for my addictions class that's actually about like implementing evidence-based practices Mm -hmm. um which would probably be interesting to talk about but in my spirituality class actually this would probably still be interesting um we talked about forgiveness and how it's understood in many of the uh different world religions and philosophies um we talked about the 12 steps program which i think we've talked about before uh, but just talked about like the 12 steps, like spirituality approach, like how to help people walk through it. And there was something else we talked about. I can't quite remember. Oh, just spiritual practices in general, how to how to kind of look at them. I thought the forgiveness chapter was most interesting, um, kind of just the way I was looking at it um, or really just what I got out of it. Because um, essentially how they kind of summed it up is – in the major monotheistic religions, which is the religions that adhere to one supreme God, uh, that would be Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, they summarize that that forgiveness in those beliefs is tied to forgiveness from your deity or a positive relationship maintained with him. Um, like, both extending forgiveness and like receiving forgiveness. I know some Christians might be like, well, wait, forgiveness from God is a free gift. But there are verses that talk about like, hey, if you don't forgive your brother when he sins against you, like don't expect forgiveness from God, um, which are very harrowing verses. (laughs) Um, So there are these ideas that talk about like withholding forgiveness um, Islam, actually, I thought this was super interesting. It, hold on. Let me make sure I'm not getting Islam and Judaism confused. Let me flip open my textbook. But uh, 
yes, Islam takes forgiveness, I think, even even deeper than I think Christianity like does. Although in all these things, I am a Christian and I can hear God in these things. I can hear Christ in these things. It's just not how Christianity interprets forgiveness. But Islam talks very specifically about like how you can harm like nature, people groups, individuals, animals, ecosystems, as well as God himself. So there's this need to receive forgiveness from these areas. Um, also, all three of these religions talk about grace and talk about their God providing grace. Um, even though we like to look at Judaism and Islam and probably think of it as being much more strict, um, I think that similar to the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this understanding of like these laws exist and we are kind of sucky and can't keep them. So God provides grace in that instance. But um, was it this one? I think it was actually Judaism that had like a system, like a step-based system for receiving um, forgiveness from someone else. Um, yes, and this happened after the destruction of the second temple. So they couldn't go and make sacrifices for forgiveness anymore. So they kind of developed this step-based process called teshuva. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing this wrong. Um, or the return. Um, so in this system, the transgressor would openly acknowledge the wrongdoing. So I've done wrong. I'm going to openly acknowledge it to everyone, uh, make a public confession to God and to the community, which is followed by a expression of remorse, a public commitment by the offender to refrain from such sins in the future, compensation for losses and damages to the victim, a sincere request for forgiveness by the victim, and then avoiding the conditions feeding into the offense and acting differently in the future when similar situations arise. Um, until the offender has completed all of the Tesheva, there isn't a requirement for the victim to actually forgive. And I know in Christianity, like the appeal is just this radical forgiveness. You know, we are supposed to be inspired by the forgiveness we've received from Christ to forgive others. But I don't know about you, but I've heard from so many people who are just wondering, what does forgiveness look like when they are in these really difficult situations with family members or friends or people who have harmed them deeply? And specifically Christians, I've, I've heard them wrestle with the idea of what does it mean to forgive this person? Do I just act like it never happened? Do I just act like it's okay? Um, and the chapter would go on to say how a lot of times spirituality and religion can be very damaging if people use religion and forgiveness to kind of just bottle things up and not actually address it. Um, which I don't think Christ is meaning for us to do when he says like, forgive your brother and sister. When he, when he says to turn the other cheek, like there is a radical forgiveness in that, but I don't think it's like a forgiving to the point of just, you know, which I might come back to this later, forgetting it never happened and letting yourself get walked on. And I, and I wonder too, if there's this understanding of the Teshuva, this like, like sequential way of earning forgiveness 
that is um, maybe understood in the context of scripture, but we don't understand it because we haven't heard of it before. Because it kind of makes sense about, it, it kind of makes like an interesting system for a whole people group to follow. We're like, instead of just saying, oh, hey, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And you having to kind of just be like, well, I hope they're right. And now the ball's in my court. And maybe like by having that kind of like sequential steps in like a society, it could make it really easy to actually determine who do we who do we forgive and how do I limit my exposure to that person if if they're not really trying to forgive like to ask for forgiveness if they're just going to be doing this con like consistently. I don't know. I just thought that was interesting looking at that from like a whole people group. Like, cause I feel like our country doesn't really have a way of reckoning. Like America is a very much like, Hey, if you hurt me, I'm probably just going to sue you. And there really isn't forgiveness. There's plenty of other people out there. I can just burn bridges. Yeah. We, we don't really have established norms you know, religious or otherwise, like it can be, everyone is kind of uh, free to choose how intensely or not intensely they want to either forgive or even apologize for that matter. Um, mm -hmm. Like this isn't exactly about forgiveness, but the new Testament scripture I think of is, uh, where it says, like, if somebody is in sin, like, grab somebody else and you go straight to them and you guys talk it out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, like, then yeah. it, it even goes a few layers deeper. Like, if, if they won't, like, admit to it, then you do this or you do that. And even that, again, like, religious or otherwise, but just the idea that, like, as a society we even have steps like i just feel like that's not really there to your point no yeah and, and i guess going along with that something i found really interesting is and honestly when i heard it i was kind of like oh shoot um because i want to go into more secular counseling i guess is what you would call it or everyone else would just call it counseling <laughs> only christians would call it secular counseling um and in that like I can't be, well, that's not true because the class I'm talking about is how spirituality and religion is important. And I guess I'll keep that in your mind that it is important as I talk about this quote I heard from Tim Keller where he was talking about how uh, he was relaying the story of a professor teaching a bunch of students and the student was asking this question and gave this like kind of I think case they were working with that had to do a lot with forgiveness and someone being able to forgive somebody else. And the professor said something along the lines of how as a counselor, forgiveness is not our field. Like being able to help someone provide forgiveness for a harm done to them isn't something that the counseling field is built for. Like the counseling field can be built for better self-understanding and self-export like exploration, um, determining where you want to go, stuff like that. But forgiveness is a spiritual condition because it has to do with hope. It has to do with like understanding judgment on a more cosmic and timeless scale. And so for someone to be able to truly 
forgive someone and move on, it's kind of intertwined with spirituality and religion, which I was kind of like, no, there has to be some way of helping people forgive someone. But honestly, like after reading this class, like forgiveness, I think is super tied to the idea of spirituality. Like you kind of have to be able in offering someone forgiveness, you have to be able to kind of trust that there's something else out there that's going to make things even, or mm. that's going to have like your back. Like even looking at the Eastern or like a lot of the other philosophies, like Buddhism and Hinduism, I think there was one called like the Sant Kam Meditations. I'm probably butchering that. And I'm so sorry because I thought it was one of the most interesting. Um, but a lot of their philosophies talk about how forgiveness might not Sant Mat, Sant Mat tradition, um, how forgiveness might not necessarily be something you do to please the higher power, but it is so important for you as the individual, like for you to be able to live at peace with yourself, like forgiveness is like key. Um, I think it's Hinduism or Buddhism. They would talk about how forgiveness is something that you should offer without expecting like an apology or wait, how you should apologize without expecting to be forgiven, how forgiveness is, yes, a two-way street, but the person who's done a wrong shouldn't apologize just to appease a victim. They should apologize so that they can live with themselves. So like whether you give a gift or whether you work to make a wrong right or whether you like are just straight up apologizing and, and promising to change and living differently. The reason you do that isn't just so that other person can look at you and forgive you. It's not just so that you can kind of like earn the forgiveness of a community back. It's not just so that you can say that you've appeased a higher power. The reason you do that is because if you feel that you've wronged a person and you're convinced that you have, if you do not do what you think is right to make that right, you're not going to be able to live with yourself. Um, so even though there's not like a higher power necessarily involved with that, I think it's still deeply spiritual because like you were saying, without our society having this known system to seek forgiveness, like to get a little dark, the suicide rates are up, depression, and anxiety is at an all time high, like substance abuse disorders are super high and prevalent in our co country. And I think a lot of that can tie into this idea of shame this idea of guilt and having no system, even for, I mean, our country's 80% people say that they're involved in religion and spirituality. Our, our country's still very Christian and understands that there's this free grace out there. They understand that like Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Even if they don't know the theology, they know the basics. But because there's no system involved, it can still seem very tangible and in feeling very like intangible. I think a lot of people just instead feel very unforgiven and can't live with themselves and then just cope however they can cope. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And I, I guess I don't know exactly what to make of it. Like, I think what you're saying too is or what you would say is it can be on either side of the equation like 
mm-hmm. if you're the person who's done something wrong, walking out the steps to try to make it right does something good in you. And if you're the person who has been wronged, uh, walking out the steps to try to forgive does something good in you. But yes, without the steps, this might be a silly analogy, but it's almost like the difference of like looking at a picture of, you know, a mountain or something versus like hiking the mountain, you know, and it's a completely different Mm. experience. And I feel like so much of what we do. Oh, that's a great analogy. Well, like the way we live today is just in our heads a hundred percent. And it's like on screens and it's like, we don't actually talk to people and we don't like do a whole lot. Like forgiveness is kind of just like me thinking about, have I forgiven them or not? It's not even literally saying the words like I forgive you. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's kind of like, I think without even like we, somebody might even, they might even think that they've forgiven somebody, but without actually like kind of using the muscles, so to speak. Does that make any sense? Yeah. No. Yeah. And there's actually some, there was models, there was therapeutic models to help people forgive that had steps in them. And in one of them, the confession of saying, I'm going to forgive this person isn't the same as forgiving the person. Like, and they acknowledged how a lot of people might even rush to forgive someone, rush to say, hey, I forgive you in order to feel either morally superior or to appease like their spirituality. Because like we know we're supposed to forgive people. So they'll say they've forgiven someone without actually doing the work of it, which can create even more harm. So like there needs to be a point where you acknowledge the goal of wanting to forgive someone, but that doesn't mean you've done it. Which goes back to that cool analogy of the mountain versus hiking it. Because I think to some people, forgiveness is this massive mountain. And the expectation is, hey, you need to go back to this mountain of life. It's that you have to be able to accomplish this huge thing of, of living as if you've never done this wrong or living as if this wrong has never been done to you. Okay, good luck. There's the mountain. Good luck. Whereas like some of these systems provide people with the actual trail markers through the mountain right? to help them through the process. It's still the, the work needs to be done. But I think a lot of people probably give up the idea of ever being able to forgive someone because all people hand them is, well, it's a good thing. You should do it. And probably even some pressure of like, why haven't you done it yet? Don't you know it's so easy to forgive someone? So. I want to go back to that quote of the counselor saying like kind of this isn't our, uh, I guess, within our purview of counseling, or I guess that's my question is what was that person saying? Were they saying, were they making a value judgment on forgiveness, like saying it's not important in counseling, or were they just saying like, that's kind of not within our control? Were they saying it's not our right to tell somebody to forgive somebody? I don't think I quite get that. No, good point. Good question. They were saying that forgiveness is super important and super massive, but that the tools that counselors have are inept at helping lead people to that type of thing. Um, That is going back to the mountain analogy. 
it's just they were just saying that like on like on face value sorry to cut you off but that actually does surprise me like that doesn't quite fit with what i think that counseling is and once again this was a a pastor using a story in a sermon so like maybe there's a little you know cherry picking maybe this (laughs) a little cherry picking um but i can kind of see it though because and it surprised me too that like forgiveness the counseling doesn't have the tools to forgive um but i think it's because counseling i think can be at its core very black and white um it's about helping people move out of the gray into black and white zones um, or they might be choosing to avoid a certain part of their life or experience, and so they're living out of dysfunction from that. And uh, and some people are going to be further along down the path than me. And if you are, like, please, please correct me. Please help me. <laughs> I'm just a student. Please help. Counseling seems so massive and scary sometimes. Um, but I think the things that really help people in counseling whether or not you are religious or spiritual, I think are things that are inherently spiritual. Like uh, person-centered theory talks about the idea of the therapeutic alliance or the idea of just being, being with the client fully and the connection between the genuine empathetic regard. That's the word. The just love and care you have for your client that in and of them that in and of itself is therapeutic and gives them much of the work that's needed to be done that sounds spiritual to me that sounds like like a connection of souls and spirit that kind of fuels life in a person i think similarly to forgiveness the tools of counseling like forgiveness really moves someone into a certain or unforgiveness, a certain way of viewing things. And it's such a hard work to do it. There are tools that can help, but kind of that person needs to be able to wrestle with some pretty existential things. Like I'm just trying to think of like people who have been abused or people who have had stuff stolen from them or people who have lost something very significant. And to help them be able to say, oh, hey, like, it's not that, oh, that doesn't matter. That's, that's a bad way of wording it. But essentially, you have to help these people be okay with what happened to them. And that's huge. Like, if they're okay with it, what if that person never pays for what they did? If they're okay with it, how is that person supposed to go on with their life? Because there's a lot of coping in unforgiveness. There's a lot of like, lifestyle that gets built around unforgiveness shoot some people we've all seen it in movies and we love it in movies the revenge plot the idea of i'm gonna live on and get better to pay you back there are actually people who live that out and they're not maybe like doing the whole like action hero thing where they're going out there and working out but the reason they get up in the morning like their life fuel is anger and to be able to get them out of that isn't just as simple as like let me show you some stats about how unforgiveness can like fit, like physically affect your health for them. Like that's their ethos. That is almost their religion. So you have to be able to help them shift into a whole new way of thinking. And I think this counselor was probably saying more often than not, good luck. 
Yeah. Because if you're just trying to use like just secular tools to help them do that, like you're going to have a lot of people who are just going to be unable to do it. Yeah, it does. Uh, it It is a very, I guess, existential is the word you use. Uh, it is a, a big decision to make because, uh, I mean, sort of if, if you were if you were wronged and you're saying, well, why should I forgive this person? Maybe one of the best explanations that can be offered is like a pragmatic, like, well, you'll live a better life if you forgive. But still, mm-hmm. that doesn't really answer the question, you know, like that doesn't make it right. Even if like practically speaking, it will make my life better to forgive. It still doesn't make what they did right in any way. Um, yeah, but actually funny enough, this goes back to Beowulf because one of the real, it all goes back to Beowulf <laughs> there. Ah, oh gosh, I think it's this word. I think it's where guild is the word. That's definitely something that is from Beowulf, but I might be, uh, recalling the wrong one, but, uh, it's essentially like the blood price for somebody and hmm. it's something that goes on in this. It's it appears in this story where, uh, you know, if you took somebody's life and I think it could be. Uh, accidental even, but if you took somebody's hmm. life, then either your life could be taken or what the what the like blood price thing is, is that there was a price you had to pay. And so if the person who died was just like, you know. Uh, a, either a, a child or a servant or a this or a that, a king, you know, whatever kind of strata they were a part of, uh, they had a different price. And so it was like the person or the family had to like literally give uh, gold. And that was hmm. the thing that was supposed to like satisfy, you know. Uh, and so again that is like a societal thing that is agreed upon and so i don't know if that makes it right but at least okay so here's the thing the the thing with the societal uh wrinkle of all of this is like if you need if you're in a position that you need to forgive somebody you are not probably in a super steady emotional place and so Mm, true the nice thing about societal norms is like even if you are saying okay i think i'm choosing to forgive or i think i'm choosing to do this thing to walk this step out that we've all agreed is the steps we take even if it doesn't make you feel better you kind of like look to your left and look to your right and people are like okay it's good now and Mm. there might be something in that too does that make any sense of like, we we all today kind of walk our own path and we try to, on the flip side, like I try not to impose the way I would do things on anyone else. And I think one result of that is like, there's no place where uh, the group can say like, Hey man, that thing has been resolved. Does that make any sense? 
I, I'm just like kind of talking. Okay. But no, I wonder. If I think I hear what you're saying. Well, because think of it this way: because we're so individualistic, I'm not going to tell you how to live. You don't tell me how to live. But what happens when one of us harms the other person? Who can say, you know, what's wrong in that instance? So that's where there's this whole like, well, hey, I wasn't doing anything that made it wrong to me. So you were just offended by the way I was living, but you can't like impose how you feel onto me. So like, where does the sense of forgiveness come from? What if the other person's not going to apologize? Um, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, kind of, but also, so like, I don't know if anybody has ever explicitly said this to me, but I feel like there have been times in my life where I'm like, you know, somebody did something to me and I kind of have an attitude about it, or I say this, or I say that, but there comes a point where like, you say that thing again, you say like, oh man, I can't believe that person did that thing. And everybody in the room is kind of like, okay, man, it's time to move on. That's mm -hmm. sort of what I'm saying is like without any sort of norms established for forgiveness or for the ability for people to try to own things, try to apologize, try to make things right. Without that, kind of nobody has two feet to stand on to say like, hey, man, it's time for you to move on. And mm. the person who has been wronged, understandably so is in the least stable position to sort of assess the landscape. And so they kind of need the people around them to say like, hey, no, man, you're right to be hurting on the one side or on the other side, like, hey, man, I know this hurts, but you've got to like figure something out or else it's going to mess with you. And I think that we have kind of like societally removed the permission for people to even have an opinion about what anybody else is going through. I don't know. I'm, oh, I'm sort okay. of just like testing this out, I guess. Yeah. No, I think, I think I hear what you're saying. It's hard to have an opinion. And even when you do have an opinion, it's hard to know what to do with it. Like you might see somebody who you know is dealing with unforgiveness, but how do you tell that person? Like if you're coming up from like a Christian standpoint, do you just tell the person like, hey, man, Jesus forgave us. So you forgive like that can seem very like cliche. It might even do more harm than good. Like it might make you seem uncaring. Um, or do you just like. Like you said earlier, like, do you just try to tell a person, hey, man, you need to be able to learn to forgive because it's going to help make your life better. Like once again, these sound like mountains, though. These sound like pictures of a mountain. Like, hey, man, you need to do this without giving, like, the steps through it. Like, where that Jewish thing said, like, hey, man, here's the steps to forgiveness. Or, hey, man, here's, like, like some of the frameworks, which I guess I could have gone into the frameworks, but we're already an hour 12 into this. Um, hey, man, here's, like, some frame. Here's a framework of forgiveness that you could work through, which I guess counselors are equipped to do. Because um, that gives them actual steps and just instead of just saying, like, hey, get over it. Right. I think I think what I was trying to say too that you helped me realize is like uh 
when you're trying to heal from something, I think that knowing that you're not crazy helps. And so true. Uh, I think that's more what I was getting at is like, it's helpful for people who, who are in a process of forgiving and healing from something. It's helpful for them to have people around them that provide sort of like a measuring stick that can bounce things back to them and be like, Hey man, no, actually you're right. Like I'd be bummed if that was me too on the one hand or on the other hand, like kind of helping them walk that, that hike, that mountain. So yeah, I don't know. It is very interesting. Forgiveness is like a very personal thing and it has like really big ramifications like you were saying let me okay so maybe just to end off i i can at least read off on a model of forgiveness there was three in my textbook there's many more but this might this might give someone who's out there like okay hey i kind of want to work through this to to kind of be able to know what to stand on to know if they're crazy to know what to do um so this is the reach model Worthington's reach forgiveness model. Um, reach being a, uh, oh, what's it called? Um, acronym. When every letter means something. Yeah, acronym. Acronym. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so reach is the first step is R, recall the hurt. And I think a lot of people like, I and maybe this is where people can kind of feel crazy is because they try to recall the hurt and people give them so many interpretations while they're trying to recall it or like by the time they're ready to actually start going through the forgiveness cycle so much time has passed that maybe it's like hey man that was a long time ago like you should move on so then they try to like not recall anyway well they haven't there is you haven't done it at that point then that makes you feel worse because you're like people are telling you it's been so long yeah i guess i could imagine that So you need to provide the person with a working model of forgiveness, the idea that like you're not pretending it didn't happen. You're not just going to let the person like back into your life like nothing happened. You're not going to let yourself get walked on again. You're not going to pretend that you're not hurt. Like it's kind of the ability for you to be able to let like. Let me see if I can find the definition of forgiveness (laughs) Um, or else I'm just going to be kind of pulling out my own model of forgiveness which isn't probably right either um do 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 do, do, do. one day we'll have ad spots and you know this is where you can play an ad as i'm flipping through the pages okay forgiveness involves a transformation of the victim's motivations thoughts and feelings toward the offender moving from negative emotions anger fear and hatred positive emotions peace compassion and love um forgiveness may happen internally but it also has complicated social interpersonal consequences and then he goes on to write for a long time by saying it's kind of easier to say what forgiveness isn't than to say what it is that's that that's where he's talking about how it's not pardoning it's not removing consequences it's not excusing. It's not providing alternative history for why it happened. It's not pretending it didn't happen. It's not entirely forgetting. So it, forgiveness is a very complicated yeah. thing to explain. Um, but at its core, 
It's a transformation of the victim's motivations, thoughts, and feelings. Motivations meaning, are you living out of fear? Are you living out of anger? Thoughts meaning like that's a lot of things with unforgiveness. There could be shame. There could be hurt. There could be anxiety. There could be anger. Um, and that also obviously ties into feelings as well, just your emotional state throughout the day. Um, so after having that definition, the REACH model says first, the first step is to recall the hurt. The second step is emotional replacement, where you're walking um, through a process, process of developing positive, other-oriented emotions toward the offender, including empathy, sympathy, compassion, and love that are ulti like ultimately intended to diminish negative emotions. Um, which once again, like uh, that sounds very complicated just to give someone a worksheet and have them do. Um, a is an altruistic gift where you see forgiveness as a unfair gift you are giving the other person. Not that you like go to the person and offer it to them, but you, you inside see it not as a, well, I'll forgive them when things are right. I'll forgive them when everything's made, but you see it as a fact that you are giving someone something that they might not earn or have earned or will ever earn or will ever ask for. Um, C is commit. So at this point, you have, you might have made all the decisions to say you're going to forgive the person, but C is the stage where you actually do it. Um, and then H is hold on, <laughs> which I find interesting that's worded hold on, not like keep going, not like make it happen, but like hold on as if you have to kind of like ride it out like a storm. Um, and you do that by just recalling commitments to forgive, uh, remembering your emotional replacements, um, just practicing new skills whenever you have those unforgiving responses. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is, you know, some things when you press into them are just way more complicated than you realize. And some things aren't, you know, some things seem simple and they are simple, but uh, forgiveness, who knew? So that's what I was learning about this week. And bro, I got so many papers I got to work on. Yeah, that's been me. Fall break is coming, though. True. But do we get I'm on a term model. I don't know if I get a fall break. And that is the episode. Thanks again for listening. Hope you guys learned something new. So excited you guys are here joining us. I know that that sounds so canned, but seriously, we're both excited about being in school, and if you guys can get some enjoyment out of that as well, hey, that's an added benefit. We'll see you guys on the next one after we get done with some more homework.